HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. My name is Kat Johnson, and we are broadcasting live from the Slow Food Nations Festival in Denver, Colorado. And right now we are broadcasting from the Taste Marketplace, which is, has popped up at the corner of Larimer Street and 14th Street. If you're in Denver, come by and see us. And if not, you can listen to us all day today and tomorrow at heritageradionetwork.org slash live. And quickly, I want to shout out the sponsors who've made our coverage of Slow Food Nations possible. Thank you to Hearst Ranch Beef, to the Julia Child Foundation, as well as our friend Julie Schaefer. Right now, I'm joined by Mitchell Davis, who's the Executive Vice President of the James Beard Foundation. He's a cookbook author, a journalist, and a scholar with a PhD in food studies from NYU. Welcome, Mitchell. Hi, thank you. I have to, as one small correction, as of, I think, last week, I'm now the Chief Strategy Officer of the James Beard Foundation. So Congratulations. Thank you. You probably didn't hear it here first, but maybe one uh, You of might the, have, maybe? actually, because I can't always remember it, but uh, it's very exciting. Awesome. Uh, yeah. No, so, we, how, how is your role going to change? Uh, n- not so much. Um, I, we, are under, we have a new CEO, Claire Reichenbach, who's uh, got a great vision for how we can weave purpose into the pleasure of food and everything that we do. And so as strategy officer, that will be one of my charges to, to find a strategic way to do that. And uh, it's what we've been doing for a long time, what I've been doing, but now it's really integrated into the whole organization. So we're very excited. That's incredible. So that seems to tie in really nicely with the with Slow Food Nations. Absolutely, a thousand percent. So right. talk about what you're what you're doing here this weekend. What are the, what are the events you're involved in? Uh, so there's a, there's so much going on here. First of all, uh, th- this is it's a little bit like a FOMO um, <laughs> festival because you can't possibly attend it all. But um, I'm here specifically to moderate a conversation tonight at the Chef Summit at Zeppelin Station, which will be about the voice and advocacy role that chefs can play in, for a larger food system change. And it's a conversation with Massimo Bottura, um, just uh, elected number one chef in the world from the world's 50 best, but also a passionate advocate for uh, against food waste and has created this global project called the Refettorio Project in his nonprofit called Food for Soul. And we're also talking with Rick Bayless, an, uh, an American-grown uh, passionate advocate for local farms and chef advocacy. And I'm so excited to have the two of them um, from a position, I think, for, for some people waking up to the role that chefs can play to make change in their communities um, more actively than just the things that they normally do in a, a day-to-day. Um, I think these are two people who've just um, inspired an entire generation of chefs to do more with what they've got. Who are some chefs now? Because you do a lot of work with the the chef boot camps with James Beard, right? Yeah. 
We've been, culti- we've been trying for the last really 10 years or so to, to take the opportunity we have with chefs as celebrities, let's say, and, and use that attention that they can garner to advocate for food system change. So when we started, it was just a bit of an idea. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, we weren't even advocating for specific things. We were just trying to encourage and train chefs to use their platform to make the change that they wanted to make. But as, the, as an organization and as the community decided to really get fired up, um, we've taken a real stand against um, the sorts of change towards sustainability, towards equity and justice and access and, and all the things that we think make good food, as we like to say now, good food for good is our mission, that trying to determine, find, celebrate, spotlight what good food is, and that includes delicious, but also sustainable and just and, and equitable, and then use it to make good in the world. So, so there, I mean, we have 220 um, chefs who've graduated from our boot camp experience, hundreds more who've participated in different programs, and you know, they're just on fire. Like they re- when you gather them together, you really feel like we can make some change. And, and in food system work, and we heard this yesterday in some of the Leadership Summit um, conversations here, it can seem so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. The world is a big place. There mm-hmm. are a lot of big problems. There, you know, we, we work in our communities, but we know that there are 800 million people who are food insecure in the world. There are, you know, all sorts of issues that seem intractable. Overwhelming. Yes. And yet, Rick and Massimo actually just recently had a dinner at the Beard House, and people say as chefs or, or as individuals, little steps add up to tremendous change. So what you do in your neighborhood, Massimo's fond of saying, can change the world. Rick said it yesterday. You know, in your restaurant, the decisions you make if every chef were to make those same decisions would really have a huge impact. And so so we're just trying to inspire people to do good things. And one thing I've been hearing a few times now in the last couple days is people seeming to encourage choosing one thing that you want to be passionate about or one, one actionable item. I'm curious in the James Beard boot, uh, Chef Boot Camp, is, is that something that you guys are encouraging? And, and have you had a, is there like a good example you have of a chef who said, who's come away from that and been like, I have one thing that I know that I can make a difference with? Uh, yes. It, I mean, it's actually, um, considering my new title, it's a perfect question because it is about strategy. You know, um, chefs and people in general, there are so many causes. Today, in our, our political space, everyone wants to do everything. You know, you don't know where to begin. Uh, and the tendency is to do a little here and a little there and a little of that. And that's fine. And those little bits add up. But if you really start to be passionate about one thing and you focus your attention, your energy, your money, um, it, you, it, you know, experience shows you can have a a more um, lasting impact. And so we've always encouraged chefs, for instance, not really to start their own nonprofit, another nonprofit, but to work within the structures that exist to help support them or broaden them. I mean, ourselves included. You know, we, if there's an issue that, if the the way that our foundation works on these political issues, if, if, if a community of chefs said, this is the thing we are passionate about, it's tremendous right now, and we need to deal with it, that's something that we would seriously consider throwing our support in so that we could facilitate that change. And so the, a, a real strategic, and it's hard in politics because politics are also so emotional, but, mm-hmm. but a strategy is really important. And I, I remember um, very passionately Sam Cass, who was um, the Obama's chef and then became their main uh, food policy advisor and who um, actually is going to be at an event we're doing on Monday. He, he, he used to get frustrated from a community of impassioned people who would see any sort of compromise as demoralizing. And of course, it's demoralizing. We all 
all want the world to change, but from a strategic perspective, little steps are the way you get to big differences. And so, so he would encourage people to be like, no, 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 this is one thing, there's another thing. I know, I mean, every day we wake up and it's hard to imagine, you know, um, the, the steps seem to be going in opposite directions sometimes, but when you focus, especially in a community of chefs who are um, sort of pillars in their community, employers, um, uh, a place that an entire community really meets from politicians to um, families and kids uh, literally in the dining room and then um, the sort of issues they have to deal with on the backside, immigration and trash and all the sort of municipal things. Their restaurants are this tremendous nexus. It's part of the reason they have some political clout because mm -hmm. um, Congress people know that these are nodes of, of economic, political, um, social, civil activity in their communities that politicians themselves go there and so they have a real power that we've been trying to capitalize on and and push some positive change. It's interesting that you bring that up as restaurants being kind of the center of like social, political, economic influence. And I'm curious, like if you have, obviously everyone's been following certain politicians going into certain restaurants yeah. and not being maybe welcomed. And that's been a big point of contention between, I, there's like kind of two groups of chefs themselves yeah. who are like, I would have handled it one way. And the other group is like, you know, I would not have welcomed them. I would have welcomed them. What's been like kind of the sense around James Beard Foundation of like, has, have you guys uh, been funny. dealing with that we directly? Actually, I, I can't speak for the foundation on this issue. Yeah. Um, we haven't we haven't really addressed it as an organization, although it's, I, I should go back and talk about it. I mean, we've all been watching what's happening. I, I have, in a slightly related area, I have been advocating and speaking about the concept that actually the customer isn't always right. Mm. Slightly different take on this. And for me, you know, we have built a hospitality industry um, for... Uh, you could say for hospitality values, but actually it's for economic values that the customer's always right and we give the customer whatever he or she wants and it doesn't really matter. And I actually think that the reality today of running a restaurant or a hospitality business um, in, a, in a culture where the decisions about what you buy, what you, how you treat your staff, all the sorts of things that you have to do to be a, an honorable business person and, uh, and person of civil society, um, are different, and sometimes the customers don't know, and I don't think they have to know, and just be, I don't think they're always right. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't be cared for and shouldn't get value for the experience that they're in your restaurant to have, but, but I don't think customers always know the intricacies of uh, the labor practices a restaurant has to deal with, or um, you know the ever-changing um, indications of sustainable seafood, mm -hmm. you know, and so yes, a customer might want salmon, but actually today we have dogfish. And I think the customer in America, in our sort of evolution as a food culture, and I think we've made tremendous strides, largely on the production side, and now I think it's time on the consumption side that we need our, we need our customers to come along and let the chefs be the experts they are and make the decisions they are. And you see it play out in some ways. You see it in the prevalence these days of tasting menus in restaurants, which are tremendously um, effective vehicles for chefs to be able to make better decisions about their restaurant because they give them finite um, sort of inputs. You get to use things that may be left over from, if you're a, a whole animal um, if you're a whole animal restaurant and not everybody wants a shank, uh, you can put a shank on a tasting menu in some way that you don't have to wait for someone to order it. You give it to them and we know it'll be delicious. So, so there's this power dynamic that plays out. And I think that it, right now what we need is for customers to evolve a little bit like the chefs have and let go of the experience, trust in the experience and help uh, chefs figure out what's a very, very difficult um, 
business to run these days. The, the challenges, the pressures on restaurants are tremendous. The desire and enthusiasm for them is huge. We, it's funny to be sitting in this town, Denver. I was here last year. I was here three years before that. This is a different town every year yeah. in terms of restaurants and developments. And, and restaurants seem so key and food kiosks and food halls are, are just everywhere in this town. And it's great. Everyone wants them. But the realities of running a food business are not um, insignificant and are not have not been as evolved, let's say, as um, other industries, retail and on. Like, you know, food is, food is messy mm -hmm. and perishable and analog and tangible and all the sorts of things that go with it. And, and restaurants require lots of people and they're just messy enterprises. And I think that the, the, the pressures on them, the model hasn't really evolved to the point that they can succeed in the current environment. I think ch changes are happening anyway. And I think to make that happen, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> to make that happen, uh, customers need to let it happen a little bit and, mm. and be a little less right sometimes and just go with the flow. I like that. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, a question about a question that you asked in yesterday's um, leadership summit. We, there was a really great panel about the future of food. And you asked a question of the panel um, that was basically, I'm paraphrasing, but you can you know jump in. But how do you reconcile kind of the local food movement and the emphasis we place on that with wanting to be a part of a global culture and to enjoy food from all around the country, all around the world? So can you touch on that and maybe like yeah. what what you took away from the panel? Yeah, it's a question. It was an amazing collection of of knowledge on that panel, and I thought it was an I, I would. I really wanted to get their take because it's a question I west wrestle with all the time. Um, I am a, 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 you know, I live a local food life, let's say, to the extent that I can. But I increasingly, especially in the political environment we're in, where there is such a retrenchment of of a global community um, in some people's minds, I'm conflicted about about what role that all that, that localness plays. And I think the answer that was very meaningful from Woody Tash, the founder of Slow Money, was that two things can exist at the same time. And the emphasis sort of um, societally has been on the global for perhaps, well, for, for the reason of economics, if not for, the, for other reasons. And that perhaps to rebalance, we need to uh, re-emphasize the local. That doesn't mean they, the global has to go away. Mm -hmm. And so they can both be there. And I think that's a, that's a very sophisticated answer. And I actually believe it's true. But I sometimes, in local food conversations, feel people are so doctrinaire. And I think you ha they also have to be open to that reality that, that communities, there are places in the world that grow things, produce things, that develop economies and even cultures based on those that, that are part of a global system. I'm very, in the work at the Beard Foundation, in my current role, but, but even in my larger personal um, connections, I, I am insistent on, on people understanding we have one food system. We don't actually have a million different food systems. We don't exactly have alternate food systems, although people propose them. But it turns out, if you really take a 10,000-foot uh, approach. It's there's one system, and what we do in all sort of little areas of that system does have a ripple resonant effect in the rest of the parts of the system. And I think uh, a way that we need to progress towards something more sustainable and equitable and and balanced is to think of it as one and to find a way. Um, a place for uh, the great chefs like Massimo Bottura and Rick Bayless to exist alongside the the sort of um, 
food security, food banks, whatever, like they're, they're, they're related and mm -hmm. we need to see that. And I think that, think, and so are the coffee producers in, in Costa Rica and the roasting places in Denver. Like it, 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 the more that we segregate into our own niches and our own world, the, the more I fear we're going to entrench the problems we have. So, so I, I, I think that we need to, I think we need to reconcile the local and the, and the global. And I also think that one thing we did in that overemphasis of global is we removed, obviously, all the regional infrastructure for local. And that's, that's the thing I just think is so powerful right now, especially in the chef community where I was saying earlier that, that they're, they employ people, they make things, they, they sort of create communities and change neighborhood blocks and all that kind of stuff. And we, we sort of took all the food stuff away from communities also. And I think it provides, food provides such a, um, a, a compelling, um, effective rejuvenation model for communities and regions that we need to be thinking about it that way. The piece I took away from the, I didn't get to say at the panel, I'll say, I'll say it now, is I actually think we have to stop thinking about food as food. That, that when we are just talking about food, it's, we are objectifying it and we sort of, it, we make it discreet, it's over here. And actually what everyone was saying on that panel yesterday was it's really integral to our economics, our identities, our, you know, very primally to our cultures. And it's almost like by making it food, uh, Rick Bayless talked about how it's become this play thing, a toy, like people play with food now as opposed to sort of um, resonate with its meaning. And I think that's partly because we've objectified it. We've made it this thing that we consume the same way we consume um, electronics and we consume television and now we consume food. It's an, it's an object. It's not, it's not this sort of different culturally resonant, meaning-giving object. And somehow I feel like we have to pull it back, we have to pull it away from nutrition and agriculture into culture culture. Mm. I don't know how, but I think that will help us see it as a tool for rejuvenation of communities. It's not about the food. I mean, we, we want the food to be good and we want it to be delicious and we want it to be well-grown, but it's really about restoring, actually Massimo Bottura says this, Jose Andres says, it's about restoring dignity. It's about, it's about bringing something back. Food, when we took... I'm sorry, I'm just babbling. I, it's, it's, it must be the heat. When well, we took... Yeah, sorry. It makes me think, too, of, like, one of um, John Eichert's point was that, like, food should be a public utility. Yes. Do you, do yeah. you agree with that? Uh, I, in theory, yes. Yeah. I don't know what it means, and I worry when, you know, look what happened in Flint with the utilities, so that, that opens it up to its own problems, possibly. But yes, I've heard it expressed more that food should be a public good, that, mm. that if we treat food as a public good, then we remove the sort of... Um, economic strata that are applied to food. I mean, I just bought a sausage in the beautiful Denver farmer's market for $18, a little sausage, and it's, it's insane. I mean, I love sausage, and I love that they're making them, and I'm sure the pigs are great, but that's a lot of money for a, a sausage. It's a lot of money for something that everyone should have access to. No one, no one will pay $18 for a sausage. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's, not, it's not tenable, and I did because I can, but, but when I see that, I think something's out of whack here. If I go to France or Italy, a sausage is a euro because it's part of who we are, who you are. And so, so I feel like we have to put the whack back in or, or, or do something that way. So, so the thing that they said to me that began to, so this idea that food, we have, to, we have to not just think about it as this separate object from us, but we have to think about it as us, as who we are. And one of the things I've, I've argued at the Beard Foundation for us to do is to find a way to make 
to integrate food into our identities in a fundamental way because then we wouldn't do some of the things we do to food because we'd be doing them to ourselves. So like, if, if we really are what we eat and we believe that profoundly, then we couldn't eat shit, you know, because like, then we'd be shit. And, and I, I feel like we have to find a way to link that. And I spent a lot of time in other cultures where that's not necessarily articulated, but you see it play out. Like, and, and Italy is one of them. I mean, this is a slow food event, so we can yeah. talk about Italy. You know? And obviously there are pressures all over that are changing, but in, but in Italy, like, Italians don't eat pasta because they are Italian. Pasta makes Italians Italian. Eating pasta makes them Italian in some ways. Like, there's not, it's a given. You know, one of the stories I always tell is we, I used to teach a class with um, NYU graduate students in Florence for 10, 10 ongoing semesters. And, um, and um, we would take the students to this, these peasant farmers. They didn't own the land. They were sort of the last holdout of the Mezzadria system, which was the sharecropping um, Tuscan um, way to organize and work the land that, that existed until 1968 by law and until the 70s. And I think these, this, these family that we know are remnants of that. They have no money. They have a farm stand in the, the Florence market. They live kind of in a shack and they are the most lovely, warm people in the world. And they would entertain our students for dinner and, you know, wealthy New York grad graduate students studying food, so that puts them in a certain class, didn't matter. And they served them this amazing meal of pasta, tomatoes they grew, olive oil they pressed, bread they baked, all this amazing stuff. And then we would take the students to some, you know, the Marchese family or whatever, literally royal, royal Italian family, and we ate the same meal. Mm. Tomatoes they had grown, olive oil they had pressed, bread they had baked. Like, there is a parity, an equity of, of food, because that makes you Italian in a way, that we have none of that. We have, you know, we have people who are peasants eat, sh- eat crap, all the cheapest crap you can imagine, and the wealthiest people eat the tomatoes and the olive oil. And something is so out of whack about that. And we have to find a way to, I think partly by imagining this as all one system that produces goods for everyone as a public good or perhaps as a public utility, um, so that we, and, and because we believe in the right of those people to have access to those good things as a right, not as a, as a luxury, uh, luxury yeah. Um, to make that kind of change. I, I don't see how else we're going to solve the problem because $18 sausages are like so out of the realm of a solution. Yeah. Well, Mitchell, I'm so glad that you're going to be dealing with strategy now because like we definitely need people thinking and talking about these things. And, um, and, can you quickly just plug again the Chef Summit tonight that you'll be at? Yeah, Chef Summit tonight starts at 9 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, it's a little bit late at the Zeppelin station. And uh, I think the program begins at 9.45 with a conversation uh, with Massimo Bottura and Rick Bayliss and me about sort of the chef's voice. There are other conversations. Steven Satterfeld is a chef who's chosen a specific topic, a boot camp alum who focused on food waste. And um, Sarah Brito from the Good Food 100, who'll also be on the show, on your show, yes. uh, will be moderating a panel about um, the transparency in the food system and then there'll be a lot of interesting things tonight. Well, great. I'm so excited and I think that it's so interesting to see how you are, work- the James Beer Foundation is working with the restaurants to try to like push forward in a very concrete way some of the you know, ideals of the slow food nations. Thank you. And yeah. let me just acknowledge the role that media plays and the, the fact that Heritage Radio exists is, you know, makes, makes people know what's going on. So we it's try. really important. Yeah, thank <laughs> well, you. Well, thanks Mitchell for thanks. so much for being here. This is Mitchell Davis, the Chief, Chief Strategy Officer. Chief Strategy Officer of the James Beard Foundation. Um, and quickly, I want to thank our sponsors once again, Hearst Ranch Beef, the Julia Child Foundation, and our friend Julie Schaefer for making our coverage of Slow Food Nations possible. And we will be back in a few minutes with Dr. David Shields. Perfect. So stay tuned. Thank you.